This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 14 Chapter 7 Part 2 The American Businessman But there is also, of course, a much deeper cause of the difference, and it can easily be deduced by noting the real nature of the difference itself. When two businessmen in a train are talking about dollars, I am not so foolish as to expect them to be talking about the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. But if they were two English businessmen, I should not expect them to be talking about business. Probably it would be about some sport, and most probably some sport in which they themselves never dreamed of indulging. The approximate difference is that the American talks about his work and the Englishman about his holidays. His ideal is not labor but leisure. Like every other national characteristic, this is not primarily a point for praise or blame. In essence, it involves neither, and in effect it involves both. It is certainly connected with that snobbishness which is the great sin of English society. The Englishman does love to conceive himself as a sort of country gentleman, and his castles in the air are all castles in Scotland rather than in Spain. For as an ideal, a Scotch castle is as English as a Welsh rarebit or an Irish stew. And if he talks less about money, I fear it is sometimes because, in one sense, he thinks more of it. Money is a mystery in the old and literal sense of something too sacred for speech. Gold is a god, and like the god of some agnostics, has no name and is worshipped only in his works. It is true in a sense that the English gentleman wishes to have enough money to be able to forget it. But it may be questioned whether he does entirely forget it. As against this weakness, the American has succeeded, at the price of a great deal of crudity and clatter, in making general a very real respect for work. He has partly disenchanted the dangerous glamour of the gentleman, and in that sense has achieved some degree of democracy, which is the most difficult achievement in the world. On the other hand, there is a good side to the Englishman's daydream of leisure, and one which the American spirit tends to miss. It may be expressed in the words holiday, or still better in the word hobby. The Englishman, in his character of Robin Hood, really has got two strings to his bow. Indeed, the Englishman really is well represented by Robin Hood, for there is always something about him that may literally be called outlawed, in the sense of being extra-legal or outside the rules. A Frenchman said of Browning that his centre was not in the middle, and it may be said of many an Englishman that his heart is not where his treasure is. Browning expressed a very English sentiment when he said, I like to know a butcher paints, a baker rhymes for his pursuit, candlestick makers much acquaints, his soul with song or haply mute, blows out his brains upon the flute. Stevenson touched on the same insular sentiment when he said that many men he knew, who were meat salesmen to the outward eye, might in the life of contemplation sit with the saints. Now the extraordinary achievement of the American meat salesman is that his poetic enthusiasm can really be for meat sales, not for money, but for meat. 
an american commercial traveller asked me with a religious fire in his eyes whether i did not think that salesmanship could be an art in england there are many salesmen who are sincerely fond of art but seldom of the art of salesmanship art is with them a hobby a thing of leisure and liberty that is why the english traveller talks if not of art then of sport that is why the two city men in the london train if they are not talking about golf may be talking about gardening if they are not talking about dollars or the equivalent of dollars the reason lies much deeper than any superficial praise or blame touching the desire for wealth in the english case at least it lies very deep in the english spirit many of the greatest english things have had this lighter and looser character of a hobby or a holiday experiment even a masterpiece has often been a by-product the works of shakespeare come out so casually that they can be attributed to the most improbable people even to bacon the sonnets of shakespeare are picked up afterwards as if out of a waste-paper basket the immortality of dr johnson does not rest on the written leaves he collected but entirely on the words he wasted the words he scattered to the winds so great a thing as pickwick is almost a kind of accident it began as something secondary and grew into something primary and preeminent it began with mere words written to illustrate somebody else's pictures and swelled like an epic expanded from an epigram it might almost be said that in the case of pickwick the author began as the servant of the artist but as in the same story of pickwick the servant became greater than the master this incalculable and accidental quality like all national qualities has its strength and weaknesses but it does represent a certain reserve fund of interests in the englishman's life and distinguishes him from the other extreme type of the millionaire who works till he drops or drops because he stops working it is the great achievement of american civilization that in that country it really is not cant to talk about the dignity of labor there is something that might almost be called the sanctity of labor but it is subject to the profound law that when anything less than the highest becomes a sanctity it tends also to become a superstition when the candlestick maker does not blow out his brains upon the flute there is always a danger that he may blow them out somewhere else owing to depressed conditions in the candlestick market now certainly one of the first impressions of america or at any rate of new york which is by no means the same thing as america is that of a sort of mob of businessmen behaving in many ways in a fashion very different from that of swarms of london city men who go up every day to the city they sit about in groups with red indian gravity as if passing the pipe of peace though in fact most of them are smoking cigars and some of them are eating cigars the latter strikes me as one of the most peculiar of transatlantic tastes more peculiar than that of chewing gum a man will sit for hours consuming a cigar as if it were a sugar stick but i should imagine it to be a very disagreeable sugar stick why he attempts to enjoy a cigar without lighting it i do not know whether it is a more economical way of carrying a mere symbol of commercial conversation or whether something of the same queer outlandish morality that draws such a distinction between beer and ginger beer draws an equally ethical distinction between touching tobacco and lighting it for the rest it would be easy to make a mere external sketch full of things equally strange for this can always be done in a strange country 
I allow for the fact of all foreigners looking alike, but I fancy that all those hard-featured faces with spectacles and shaven jaws do rather look alike, because they all like to make their faces hard. And with the mention of their mental attitude we realize the futility of any such external sketch. Unless we can see that these are something more than men smoking cigars and talking about dollars, we had much better not see them at all. It is customary to condemn the American as a materialist because of his worship of success. But indeed this very worship, like any worship, even devil worship, proves him rather a mystic than a materialist. The Frenchman who retires from business when he has money enough to drink his wine and eat his omelette in peace might much more plausibly be called a materialist by those who do not prefer to call him a man of sense. But Americans do worship success in the abstract as a sort of ideal vision. They follow success rather than money. They follow money rather than meat and drink. If their national life in one sense is a perpetual game of poker, they are playing excitedly for chips or counters as well as for coins. And by the ultimate test of material enjoyment, like the enjoyment of an omelette, even a coin is itself a counter. The Yankee cannot eat chips as the Frenchman can eat chip potatoes, but neither can he swallow red scents as the Frenchman swallows red wine. Thus when people say of a Yankee that he worships the dollar, they pay a compliment to his fine spirituality more true and delicate than they imagine. The dollar is an idol, because it is an image, but it is an image of success and not of enjoyment. That this romance is also a religion is shown in the fact that there is a queer sort of morality attached to it. The nearest parallel to it is something like the sense of honor in the old dueling days. There is not a material but a distinctly moral savor about the implied obligation to collect dollars or to collect chips. We hear too much in England of the phrase about making good, for no sensible Englishman favors the needless interlarding of English with scraps of foreign languages. But though it means nothing in English, it means something very particular in America. There is a fine shade of distinction between succeeding and making good precisely because there must always be a sort of ethical echo in the word good. America does vaguely feel a man making good as something analogous to a man being good or a man doing good. It is connected with his serious self-respect and his sense of being worthy of those he loves. Nor is this curious, crude idealism wholly insincere, even when it drives him to what some of us would call stealing any more than the duelist's honor was insincere when it drove him to what some would call murder. A very clever American play, which I once saw acted, contained a complete working model of this morality. A girl was loyal to, but distressed by her engagement to a young man on whom there was a sort of cloud of humiliation. The atmosphere was exactly what it would have been in England if he had been accused of cowardice or card-sharping and there was nothing whatever the matter with the poor young man except that some rotten mine or other in Arizona had not made good. Now in England we should either be below or above that ideal of good. If we were snobs we should be content to know that he was a gentleman of good connections, perhaps too much accustomed to private means to be expected to be businesslike. If we were somewhat larger-minded people we should know that he might be as wise as Socrates and as splendid as Bayard, 
and yet be unfitted perhaps one should say therefore be unfitted for the dismal and dirty gambling of modern commerce but whether we were snobbish enough to admire him for being an idler or chivalrous enough to admire him for being an outlaw in neither case should we ever really and in our hearts despise him for being a failure for it is this inner verdict of instinctive idealism that is the pointed issue of course there is nothing new or peculiar to the new world about a man's engagement practically failing through his financial failure an english girl might easily drop a man because he was poor or she might stick to him faithfully and defiantly though he was poor the point is that this girl was faithful but she was not defiant that is she was not proud the whole psychology of the situation was that she shared the weird worldly idealism of her family and it was wounded as her patriotism would have been wounded if he had betrayed his country to do them justice there was nothing to show that they would have had any real respect for a royal duke who had inherited millions what the simple barbarians wanted was a man who could make good that the process of making good would probably drag him through the mire of everything bad that he would make good by bluffing lying swindling and grinding the faces of the poor did not seem to trouble them in the least against this fanaticism there is this shadow of truth even in the fiction of aristocracy that a gentleman may at least be allowed to be good without being bothered to make it another objection to the phrase about the almighty dollar is that it is an almighty phrase and therefore an almighty nuisance i mean that it is made to explain everything and to explain everything much too well that is much too easily it does not really help people to understand a foreign country but it gives them the fatal illusion that they do understand it dollars stood for america as frogs stood for france because it was necessary to connect particular foreigners with something or it would be so easy to confuse a moor with a montegrin or a russian with a red indian the only cure for this sort of satisfied familiarity is the shock of something really unfamiliar when people can see nothing at all in american democracy except a yankee running after a dollar then the only thing to do is to trip them up as they run after the yankee or run away with their notion of the yankee by the obstacle of certain odd and obstinate facts that have no relation to that notion and as a matter of fact there are a number of such obstacles to any such generalization a number of notable facts that have to be reconciled somehow to our previous notions it does not matter for this purpose whether the facts are favorable or unfavorable or whether the qualities are merits or defects especially as we do not even understand them sufficiently to say which they are the point is that we are brought to a pause and compelled to attempt to understand them rather better than we do we have found one thing that we did not expect and therefore the one thing that we cannot explain and we are moved to an effort probably an unsuccessful effort to explain it the end of section fourteen chapter seven part two